Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and ask us. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by Prost, Exercise for Prostate Cancer Incorporated a not-for-profit charity set up in 2012 by myself, Dr. Joe Miller. If you want to know any more information about Prost, including our online service now available, please just go to prost.com.au. Prost means cheers to your health, so Prost to you. So stop for a second and listen. It's not silent at all. Welcome to the Penis Project. Today we're very excited by popular demand. We've had a few patients email because they've read about Dr. Dangerfield, David Dangerfield's research and work in restoring erectile function in men after prostate cancer surgery using nerve grafting. Um, so, yes, David, the way I got onto you was that a couple of our patients, our regular listeners, have actually emailed, found out about you and said, find out about this. So here we are. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into this? And you're a urologist and where are you and what do you do? Yes, certainly. I'm in um, in Bayside, Melbourne. Melissa, my practice is in Bayside, Melbourne, and I've been here for 12 years. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm originally a a Victorian, but I did all of my training in Queensland. I was lucky lucky enough to be Queensland trained. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, came back down to spend time with the family and was invited to stay on here uh, in a local hospital. Uh, and I've been here for 12 years. And for almost the last seven of those, I've been involved with a microsurgeon, uh, Professor Chris Coombs, mm-hmm. who is the head of the um, Royal Children's here. And he had a special interest in what we call enterside nerve grafting, and he'd um, regularly speak uh, around the world uh, on this type of nerve grafting. And he had a colleague in Brazil who was looking at this new procedure or the principles behind this new procedure, and he went to Brazil uh, and operated with him. And his name was Professor Viterbo, Fausto Viterbo, and he was um, at the essence uh, of reintroducing this technique in the early 90s for other applications. So it was nerve grafting for um, injuries, peripheral injuries, peripheral nerve injuries, and also facial nerve palsy, Melissa. So it was, you know, the, the people you see that only have half a smile. Yeah, yeah. So that might nerve. be from a stroke or from a, like, you know, Gillian Barre or something like that? Something like that, yeah. So he was using nerve graft. So he'd connect a, a nerve graft from one side of the face and bring it across to the other side of the face to get the people smiling again. So it was all of those 
um, principles that he was using. And, and seven years ago, he'd been to almost seven years ago, he'd been to Brazil and, and talked about that, looked at these techniques and then came back and talked to me about them in, in the context of post prostatectomy, post radical prostatectomy, erectile dysfunction to get a source of nerves into the corporal body, bodies, the penile corporal bodies, mm-hmm. uh, and potentially restore the area with the right chemicals that bring on uh, an erection. And uh, it was all a bit much for me to begin with to understand that, and it's a completely different specialty. Um, and we, we thought about it for a while, and then we began the technique and had some early success, and, uh, and it developed from there. Great. So that, so basically, as a lot of our listeners would know, that if you have a radical prostatectomy, the chances of being having erectile dysfunction following are very high. And the normal thing we do is penile rehab to keep the penis yes. healthy. And then we do that usually for a couple of years if they've had nerve sparing surgery, hoping, hoping that things will come back to normal. Um, but yes. there are guys who have completely non-nerve sparing surgery and so the ones that don't recover and the guys that have non-nerve sparing, this would be great for them. And so you have done some, like, research into that. And how's how's it gone? Like, how many of these surgeries have you done and, and how's it all been? Yeah, we're about at a number, we're about at 100 patients now, Melissa. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so we're due to to produce more now at this stage. So we, we got the initial paper out. Um, it was actually in 2019 now, uh, and, and things have changed a bit because of COVID, of course. Yeah. Um, but that initial paper was was very positive, uh, and although they're all on small groups of patients, um, there's been a, a, a clear um, uh, a clear response rate, a clear response in terms of you know potential new technique for penile rehabilitation all of the patients go through or, or usually have been through by the time they get to us conventional forms of penile rehabilitation and we all continue that as well but then we add our technique on top so so when, so when you say conventional forms we're talking about vacuum pumps taking pde5s and perhaps trying injections so yes. do you get them to do that as like preparation for this surgery? Like, is it better? Say they're waiting the two years to have it done and they realise their nerves haven't woken up yet. Is it better if they've been doing traditional rehab or does it not really matter? Um, I think it's always going to be be better. I don't have strong data on that because most of them have, you know, PDE5s and and pumps. Um, A lot of them come to us because they don't tolerate injections. Yeah. Um, so I can't tell you whether it's better if they have done that or not, because most of them all have done that. And we continue on that as well, Melissa. They all continue on um, medications afterwards mm-hmm. and, and, and the pumps if they'd like to as well. We usually take them off injections for a while, at least a year. We mm-hmm. keep them off injections because we're wanting them to get the most out of, really out of the PDE5 inhibitors. Yeah. Um, and, and if they're still struggling a year down the track from our procedure, I'll get them back onto the injections if they tolerate that, just to try and give them extra stimulus. Yeah. Um, and again, going back a step, they're broken down into the nerve sparing and the non-nerve sparing. So 
in more recent times when people have found out what we're doing, we're getting to the non-nerve spared patients earlier. Mm-hmm. And, and we're about to publish on this now and they're tending to do better because we're getting to them earlier. So, so theoretically, we, we will operate on someone who's had a non-nerve sparing radical prostatectomy straight away. Yeah, that's interesting, actually, because um, I know that with the guys who put in the implants, they say the same thing. If someone's had non-nerve sparing, it's much better to get in earlier rather than later because the, like, tissue in the penis is better, so healthier. Go for it, Joe. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. There's the the, the venous occlusion, the, the venous leakage, which leads on to scarring, generally occurs over time. So that's why the, the distinction is there to, to, to arrest that as quickly as possible. We graft them as quickly as possible, whereas in the nerve-sparing patients, we're giving them two years to, to see if they recover. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where there's a bit of a controversy there. So we're giving them two years to recover, but we're also giving them potentially two years to start scarring. Yeah. Um, and it's really, it's really difficult to predict because we've had another group of patients, a smaller group of patients that we've got to up to 10 years down the track and we've got them back to function. So you'd think, you know, they'd scar over that time, um, but we've got them back to function and they're, 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 they're a particular group of patients. So they might be 10 years down the track, but they have a degree of erectile strength. They're not functional, but all of those guys so far down the track had a degree of erectile strength. So they sort of had a viable mechanism there that we just enhanced. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult to predict who's going to scar down badly and who's not. Yeah. Okay. Hey, uh, David, I'm Joe's going to pop in here and just to let yes. everyone know, we're doing Zoom from um, Western Australia over to Melbourne. So uh, hopefully our technology works okay. Mm. And what I'd really love to ask you, David, is you've mentioned a couple of times how it might be better to get on to this operation more quickly. Do you ever foresee the day where potentially when we do radical prostatectomy that we could do the nerve grafting procedure at the same time? How, how quickly is quick enough? Yeah, you could. You could, Joe. Um, one of the advantages of our procedure is that we do get to reassess you down the track. And it's, I think it's more in the context of a nerve sparing um, radical prostatectomy, but also in the context of the oncological principles. So um, 10 or 15 years ago, there was another nerve grafting procedure that was trialed and it didn't work. And it was a procedure where they put nerves in at the time of the radical prostatectomy. Sure. But they weren't, they weren't totally, um, well, they weren't quite sure oncologically how the patients would do, particularly mm-hmm. in, in patients with more advanced disease. So they'd go on these patients, have that nerve grafting procedure, but then end up on androgen deprivation. Sure, yeah. And that would knock it off. Completely. Yeah, our advantage is sometimes that we can give you some, we can give you time to recover oncologically and see how you go, 
and then go on to our procedure. So it saves you if, if, if you haven't got the, the result oncologically with your radical prostatectomy and you're going on to androgen deprivation, because sure. our procedure's delayed, you don't have you, you wouldn't have our procedure because it's never going to work for you if you're going on to androgen deprivation. That's a good that's a question. So if, if someone hasn't had surgery and they've just had radiation and chemotherapy and, and perhaps um, androgen deprivation therapy, this isn't an option yep. for them. It's only an option for people who have chosen surgery. Well, we're still developing that, to be totally honest, Melissa, and it's even though we've been going six or so years, we've been focused mainly on the surgical group. Sure. Um, we're looking at the radiation group and we've done a couple of patients recently and we've had some early promising results, but still it takes a long time to recover. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the issue can be with these other forms of treatment, particularly radiation. The radiation affects the nerves, but it also affects the whole all the erectile tissue as well mm-hmm. and right. can cause scarring. So it would, doesn't matter if you get the nerves back. If the actual corporal bodies have been damaged by the radiation, they're never going to work anyway. Yeah. So in that instance, look, you might be better with an implant, really. Yeah, well, that instance, well, we're looking further and we've had some advice from some radiation oncologists about potentially looking at angiograms or other MRIs to look at the viability of the corpora to see if anything's left before you graft it. Mm, okay. That's a potential. That's that's potential for the future. Right. You know, now, that's, yeah, it's a lot of work. Can I ask, David, what's the earliest um, time you've actually put, done the nerve grafting procedure after radical prostatectomy? Three in, months. Say, in three, three months. Three months, Joe. Yeah. Three months okay. in a non-nerve sparing radical prostatectomy. And how did that particular individual go? If you remember, he got that function back. Period? Yeah, he got functioned back. So we've got a the next paper that's that's coming out now. We've got another group of non-nerve sparing radical prostatectomy patients, and generally they're being done earlier. The mean time between the two surgeries is shorter, um, and we've got a response rate of about 60, 62%, it's looking like. So I've got all the data. We're just waiting to write that paper, but it's an easier paper to understand because it's just non-nerve sparing patients. Mm-hmm. And, and sure. generally their, their chance of being rehabilitated is very low. Yes, definitely. Sure. And we've got and this. Gonna... So this is a this is a group of 20 odd, 20 odd guys who are looking like having a response rate of about 62%. And what um, sort of time frame is that at? Sorry, Joe. What sort of time frame is that post nerve sparing? So the sixty-two percent is that at six months, twelve months? So that's at twelve months. So this is non-nerve sparing patients. That's at that's at twelve months, roughly at twelve months. David, would you be able to like talk us through in layman's terms, like what the procedure involves? Like if if I was a guy, let's just imagine I was that lucky, um, how it would go if if I wanted to come and see you and have this surgery done? What what would I expect? Yes, certainly. We're um, so it, it, there's two of us involved, Melissa. So you, you start with me, and I'm just looking at you. Um, to, to make sure you meet the criteria, and that is usually that you've been cured of your prostate cancer um, with a radical prostatectomy, 
you um, had a strong um, sex life pre-morbidly, so you had um, strong erections pre-morbidly, unassisted erections pre-morbidly, and that helps to exclude um, the other comorbidities Mm -hmm. that have an impact on your erections as well because we're not going to change those. If they're there beforehand, you know, they're going to get in the way after the surgery as well. Um, It helps to have a supportive partner. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it helps to get to us as early as possible. And then I assess you and I usually um, use uh, Doppler penile ultrasounds as well, just to have a look at the vas- vasculature. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were initially when we did all of this, we were very focused on the nerves. But um, if you haven't got good blood vessels, yeah. uh, as in you haven't got a strong input, you haven't got a strong, you've got to have strong arterial flow there. Yeah. And then... And most importantly, to demonstrate uh, a lack of venous leak. That's what comes on with the scarring. Melissa, you end up with venous leakage. So you can have all the blood coming in, but if it's leaking away, you're going to have troubles, particularly in maintenance afterwards. Yeah, so see that a lot. Yeah. Yes, and that's mandatory in our assessment now. We didn't do that initially, but that that's to qualify for the procedure now you need to have a strong result on a Doppler penile ultrasound, and that's where we give you an injection and and make those measurements. Mm -hmm. And so I do all of that, and then you're assessed by um, Professor Coombs as well. So from a microsurgical point of view, Mm -hmm. uh, and we talk to you about the the realistic, um, taking in, in all the factors into your individual factors, the realistic chance and probability of having a successful outcome. And we also talk about the side effects of the procedure. Mm-hmm. And then when they, how long do they spend in hospital and all of that? That's right. So, so the, the procedure is, is well tolerated and it's, and it's essentially microsurgery. So there's a number of incisions where, so they're in hospital overnight um, and we, we like to assess you, you know, within a week afterwards. So you, you follow it up within a week afterwards or maybe even a second time a week after that to ensure your recovery is complete. Mm-hmm. And then we re-establish the rehabilitation usually two or three months down the track. But, um, you know, patient comes in overnight, they have a catheter during the procedure, but the catheter comes out first thing in the morning and they have a number of, small incisions and it's bilaterally. So there's a, a one centimetre incision at the bottom and the top of the calf where we access the, the sural nerves themselves and take them out. And that's done in both calves. Mm-hmm. And then there's a two, two inch or four or five centimetre incision in both groins where we access the femoral nerves. Mm-hmm. And then a, a one centimetre incision at the base uh, of the corporal bodies bilaterally as well. So they're, they're, they're just small incisions um, and, and the patients recover from them very quickly. So how long are they out of action for? So yeah, the, the um, mobilising or harvesting the sural nerves gives you all sorts of funny feelings in your legs. Mm-hmm. And you can get neuropathic pains initially down your legs. You can get these shooting pains that are like um, when you hit your funny bone. You can get yep. those down the back of your legs, and they usually, if they're if they're going to cause troubles, they can cause trouble for a week or two. Mm-hmm. 
and then they usually settle down themselves. Also, you can get strange sensations in your legs because we mobilise the femoral nerves, where we're grafting into in the femoral nerves, and they're the nerves at the top of your leg that are responsible for supplying the quadriceps muscles. So you can have um, uh, variability in the impact there, and that can give you weakness in your quadriceps muscles and also some sensory changes in your proximal legs as well. Um, but nothing, nothing permanent there. Um, but they can go on over variable times as well. So we, you know, we cover our, cover ourselves and saying to the patients, you feel like you've been hit by a truck initially. Yeah. But it all settles down. It all settles down, and you recover from all of that. The only permanent defect is from where the sural nerves are harvested, and they. They're, they're very large nerves and that's why we use them, but they don't do much, Melissa. They supply sensation to the sides of the feet. So the, the guaranteed and regular side effect mm-hmm. is to have numb areas on the side of your feet. Okay. And the majority of patients tell us that those numb areas contract over time. Right. Okay, but they do feel, you feel strange initially where you've got these numb areas on the side of your feet and we've done a couple of, marathon runners uh, a couple of there's two they've been gps that have been marathon runners and they felt it initially um, but then that that settled down as well so by and all it's quite tolerable you can have some issues early on particularly in that first fortnight with the shooting pains mm-hmm. down the back of the leg uh, again that's not regular but we've had patients that have had that Um, but over the long term, you're just left with those numb areas on the side of the feet, and the great majority of patients are not bothered by that at all. Now, David, can you talk us through the experience with the erectile function return? So uh, how long would it actually take for maybe your average case? I know it's difficult to say what's an average case. to start getting maybe some more normal sensation to know that potentially there's been success with the procedure? Yes, certainly, Joe. Yep. Well, our, our, our average response rate, we still say, is around about a year. The best guy was five months. Uh, the worst guy who's responded the longest time has been about close to 18 months, 15 to 18 months. And this is usually just a, a length issue for the, the new nerves. There's new nerves that we, that we stimulate to grow out of the femoral nerve, and they grow at a millimetre per day. And they grow down the graft and are directed into the corporal bodies down the graft. So they grow a millimetre per day. So just based on that, we say somewhere between nine and 12 months. Sure. And And we often have... Sorry, you go. Sorry, Joe. The the initial indicators for a positive response are usually nocturnal when the patients are subconscious. They're nocturnal erections begin or are strengthened or become more regular or return. And that's usually in the subconscious state when there's, you know, a limited amount of adrenaline in the body. Mm. Um, We say to the patients, adrenaline's the big enemy. So when patients are getting frustrated or, or are having negative experiences, that can really have an impact on, on what's going on and what's going on in their recovery. So that's why naturally we see in their subconscious state when there's 
the the least amount of adrenaline in their body at all uh, at all is when they start and see the changes relating to our procedure. That's really fascinating. From my physiotherapy experience, a lot of guys mentioned to me uh, that in the clinic they start to get um, signs of, we'll, we'll use these phrases, stirrings or yes. um, awakenings and that they're getting sometimes just sharp little spasms intermittently or even something I call the phantom leak, which is a sensation that they're leaking urine when they actually haven't. So these sort of nerve sensations start to reoccur and then building on over time, um, this is, you know, without your procedures and the PNR rehabilitation focus, we're getting more and more of these healthier sorts of sensations. But has anyone described anything like that to you in the early days? Yes, yeah, certainly. Certainly. Yep. Yep. Um, not all the patients, Joe, but yeah, it, it's sort of six to six to eight weeks. They get a right. they just get a feeling like that. That's more of a feeling. Nothing's happening. There's no erectile response. No, but yeah, it's but just it's a, just a just a vague feeling that we yeah. get. Yeah, when I see the patients, I see the patients, usually Professor Coombs follows up early on and and, and makes sure that their recovery is complete. And when they come back to me at the two or three month mark, yeah, I've, I've had a number of them explain that. Because uh, yeah, it's difficult to measure that. that kind of thing. It's really difficult to measure that kind of thing. And I know, you know, the questionnaires that we use, like the International Index of Erectile Function, that yes. every yeah. scores. Yeah. Um, are more satisfactory to the clinician. So that's just something I wanted to ask you about as well. You recently did a, um, a podcast or a webinar for the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia, and you discussed a little bit with Professor Coombs about how it was considered to be a little bit experimental. So moving yes. forward, um, given that this technique has been done for many other nerves um, for many years and it's no longer experimental, what sort of support are you getting from... Um, urologists now that you've had more case studies? Um, it's, um, we've had we've had good support um, from a number of urologists all around the country, um, a couple over there in Western Australia and, and a few here in Melbourne. Um, it's, it's a new technique, Joe. So, you know, medical circles are always very conservative. Absolutely. And when we, we knew that going into this, and I was lucky enough to speak to a couple of senior urologists here in Melbourne, uh, and they were very clear on what we were going to go through, and they've been correct in their <laughs> assumptions. Um, it's it's um, it's difficult to start something new, and I was lucky I was advised early on how to do this properly. So, you know, we've been going, it'll be seven years in February, and still we're right, we're, we're really at the start of this as well because we've been so slow and conservative and, um, and it's been the right thing to do. You know, if we had have, you know, just got hold of those first two or three cases we did and, and, uh, and got it out there and, and uh, described how good we were to everyone, you know, we wouldn't have had a chance. So you'll see that first paper really was the first 20 patients. So it was more than 20. It was 20, 22 or 25 patients after years of work. So I sat down with Professor Coombs initially and, you know, we did one patient. And first and foremost, we were ensuring 
there wasn't any severe side effects. And, and the microsurgeons were very confident of that anyway. I had to say, because it was the first time I was seeing this and they'd been harvesting sural nerves for decades for all the other applications. So they were happy that there wasn't going to be really any serious downsides to this. And we went through the process with a few patients and, and examined them all and let them go for a year wait until they responded or didn't respond because uh, because not everyone responds of course uh, uh, but but made sure of the tolerability long term of the procedure so we did that in the early days so I was very confident about that and then we've gone on and just refined in terms of the recovery rates and then the predictable the predictability looking at these factors at, at, at who does well and who doesn't do well and that's and become, mind, yep. And that's become more and more uh, understandable over the time to see the guys that are done earlier. The smaller guys now, we're looking at BMIs. The smaller guys do much better. It's a much more difficult operation in the bigger guys. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So these are the factors we're coming around to now, so we can make it more predictable, and we're and we're. We're only doing it the, the, the procedure on the ideal candidates now as well. Can I just ask a question? You know, back to when you said that one of the side effects is this sharp shooting pain down the legs. Can you prescribe yes. like um, pregabalin or, you know, something like that for the nerve pain or is that kind of counterintuitive with the surgery? No, not at all, Melissa. That's a, it's, a, it's a purely, it's a neuropathic pain. Yeah. So they become like short-term neuropathic pain patients. So, yeah, they get... Um, yeah, they'll get a short course, a week or two of Lyrica. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and also, but, it, but again, that's not common. That's yeah. not common. And then oh, so one more question and then Joe wants to ask you another question. We might have to get you back another day. We've got so many questions for you. Um, yeah. What about, is it an expensive procedure? Like if, you know, someone is considering this, is it going to, are they going to be out of pocket a lot? I mean, I'm, I, I gather that this, it sounds very technical, so I'm assuming, you know, it's a lot of time, so... Yeah, there's a lot of time and there's there's two of us there. You have a urologist and a microsurgeon through every procedure, mm -hmm. um, but it is rebateable. Yep, it's, um, yeah, there's 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 out-of-pockets for both of us. There's out-of-pockets, mm -hmm. but in the context of um, private radical prostatectomy, um, it's usually cheaper. Okay. Depending on where you go. Yeah, great. Yep, and we look, we look at every patient, of course. Yeah. Yes. So once they've cocked up the dot, <laughs> what I'd really like to know, David, is what everyone wants to know, what are your results like? So we've read the paper. A lot yes. of our audience won't have read the paper. But yes. from that 2019 publication, the results were incredibly um, inspiring. So do you mind just sharing yes. the results? Yes, certainly. So um, the results long term now, and again, we've done 100 patients, but they've got to recover. There's still the last 20 or 30 of those to recover. But all up now, when they look at when you look at our criteria, our recovery rates are still around 65%. That's great. Great. Yeah. So again, we're, we've, we've refined it as in there's a strict criteria going right back to the Doppler penile ultrasound that, that need to be lined up. You know, that's that's where it is. You have to have the right patients. You can't do the operation on all, all radical prostatectomy patients. 
And, you know, we've, got, we've just got better at better at refining the criteria. And, and we know we're producing this research, so it's, it's important to adhere to that at this time to get and, the best and, results. Sorry, and with all things, it's not just the function, the measure of that erection, which is a score of its own, but it's about the quality of life yeah. of the patient. Yes. In your paper, it yeah. actually reported 94% of men had improved quality of life and 82% had reduced bothersome um, symptoms. So that's actually hugely important. Do you have any comment to make on that? Yes, certainly, Joe. So that's the, the quality of life, You can, if you can say, is the easier part of the the equation uh, and you know you don't get anywhere these days without a measure of quality of life and you know we've got a, a big group well, well a reasonable group of guys that haven't got there the whole way and again it's it's been frustrating because we can only use the double IEF as the measure of of uh as the validated tool to measure their their true sexual function and it just doesn't take into account mm -hmm. everything I think it's a quite a quite a flawed measure, it but it's the only measure we've got. So we've had a lot of guys that have failed according to the IIEF, um, yeah. but have still recovered some form of their function and being very, very um, gratified by that. Mm. Um, we've had another group of guys that haven't recovered any function, but have in, improved their quality of life by just going through the process and going through the process with their partners. Yeah, because I think that's so, right. When just getting couples talking about this and working on something together with a common goal often improves the relationship Yeah, and, and yes. helps them find other ways to work around, really, these yeah. sort of situations. Well and truly, Melissa, and we followed them for two years. They go through the whole process and they're followed up for two years with that. So, it's there's, you know, there's really only been a handful of patients come back at the end of that and say, look, you, re you really haven't done much for us. Mm. You know, there's only you, if someone and then um, if someone was in like another state, not in Melbourne, and they can't see you face to face, or if they're in lockdown and they can't see you face to face, yes. are yes. they able to book like the initial consult to figure out whether or not they would be a person who this might be an option for by Zoom? Can they have a oh, consult? Of, oh, of course, Melissa, we've, we've, we've um, had patients from from basically all states of Australia now. We've had um, um, quite a few Western Australians and uh, I know there's trouble at the moment. Like this afternoon's list was um, a South Australian and he's been postponed. That's just what's happening at the moment. But mm -hmm. no, 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 of, of course we see everyone by, by Zoom and the Doppler penile ultrasounds can be done everywhere. I, I usually like to do them myself, but of course you can get them done wherever and and both myself and and, and uh, Chris Combs will, will um, do Zoom consultations at the moment, well and truly. Mm -hmm. Yep, it's easily done. Great, that's wonderful because um, that's accessibility to people is what we're all about sharing as well. Now, I just yes. wanted to ask your opinion on something else. I've actually um, been given the opportunity to work a lot with patients who had Peyronie's disease, and a lot of it as a complication of either radiation or radical prostatectomies post-operative. Yes. So I know the process of trying to work out how if a treatment works or not. And I produced a paper that showed um, ultrasound therapeutic ultrasound was helpful. But then I had an opportunity provided to me to work with uh, focal shockwave therapy. And I just wondered if that's had any opportunity in your patient group now to be explored upon. I know 
Um, the focal shockwave is looking at nerve recovery in post-prostatectomy. There's a couple of big trials going on, but I just wondered if this might have a place and has there been any physiotherapists or urologists that maybe have worked with you on this population, just thinking a bit more broadly? Yes, I know that's that's going ahead, Joe. We, um, and is in our space, but no, I haven't really had any um, experience with Peroni's patients there. It, it is um, generally uh, in our exclusion criteria, uh, and I and I rely I rely on the ultrasound more than anything now. And what about if um, so? There wasn't any peroneces or any scar tissue, but you wanted to enhance those guys who'd had the procedure but were a little bit slow. Um, there's a couple of urologists in um, Melbourne now who I can link you up with who have got the shockwave. Have you teamed up with them potentially at all to help your nerve grafting procedure? Just no, we wondering. haven't. Yeah, we haven't at this stage. No, we haven't. And you you could see what potentially could be, you know, there's some studies there potentially yeah. to weigh yeah. all of that up. Yeah. Yeah. We just need the support and um, need the organisation around all of that. But we we definitely like to give that a go at some stage. Great. Okay. Um, Good. It's definitely emerging as well and it's early spaces and early days. But just thinking of all the conservative things that might, you know, collide together to help out. Easier. Yeah, easier things to do. I definitely joke, easier things to do. My understanding that's that's still based on angiogenesis and and um, and the vasculature and trying to initiate and um, stimulate a stronger vasculature. Um, you know, we're 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 we've got a different angle at everything um, in, yeah. in terms of penile rehabilitation because we're looking at the neurological side of things. So we think we're the with a sort of start of a new a new avenue, looking at the whole thing about neurotization. That's what we're all about. Whereas all the rest of the the other forms of penile rehabilitation are still centered on the vasculature. Mm, that's what's so course, exciting. Mm. Yeah, you need both systems going. You know, you need all factors in your favor. But we know that the majority of of um, or radical prostatectomies, and we're looking at other procedures that are brought on erectile dysfunction. It's all about the, the neurological insult, and that's where we're just trying to focus. Of course, like I said before, you've got to have the, the blood vessels in play and ensure they're all healthy. Our focus is on the, the neurotization or the re-neurotization of the corpora. And um, we're lucky in Australia we have the, the world experts that visit regularly or semi-regularly or, or did before COVID, and there's, there's one... Uh, urologist from New York, uh, John Mulhall, and um, been listening to him for years and years. He comes down every year, and uh, he always talked about the future being neurotization. So when we started doing this, it sort of rang rang true with what we were doing in terms of trying to focus on the the nerve side of the erectile, the neurological side of erectile dysfunction. In, in penile rehabilitation rather than just on the vessels and, and hoping that the nerves wake up. Yeah, John Mulhall has been sort of my mentor, go-to person from all of his earlier uh, YouTubes that you could get. And um, I know that yes. they refer to him as the king of erectile dysfunction in the, in the US. Yes. 
Yes, I, I haven't had a chance to. I'm hoping to meet him at some stage. I haven't had a chance to to talk to him thus far. Mm, so if we ever get to travel again, hey? Yeah, yeah, if we ever get to travel again, yeah, yeah, 2025. Yeah. So if um, your patients out there or anywhere around Australia want to actually um, access you, I'm imagining at the moment that um, people themselves can refer rather than waiting for urologists and the actual published works to become available. So I guess... Um, are you looking at recruiting more people for your research or anything like that as well? Or yeah, of course, of course, yeah, yeah. We're still we're still um, going through that process, and we'll continue to do that really indefinitely at the moment. Um, so we're um, we're just going about what we have so far. It's it's we're we're looking to um, hopefully hopefully join with other units, Joe. Uh, at some stage, again, we had things starting before COVID, um, and we were we were uh, approached by um, a number of units. The, the 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 best one I think was probably from Harvard. We Wonderful. had uh, the head of the Harvard Urology Department approach us, and again, everything's sort of gone on the back burner now because of COVID. So we're looking to. Um, yeah, combine our research and 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 uh, hopefully get the the procedure practiced and refined further overseas, which will always um, you know consolidate what we're doing and and hopefully add a, a legitimacy to it if we can get it duplicated uh, with is, the right people. Is this so? This is a world first, really, David. Well, the the where where it came from and Professor Viterbo. He, yeah, he was, you know, he'd done 40 cases by the time we'd started and he does a, a different procedure. Um, but because of where he's, his background, he was sort of the grandfather of endocide nerve grafting. He does a lot of other things as well. Mm-hmm. So he, he continues to do the procedure, but not in the volumes that we do. And so we've sort of taken over the research there. Uh, and we've changed a few things that he did as well. Yeah. So and as, and as from what I'm aware, we're the only, um, yeah, the only unit, the only group doing it around the world at this time. It's so exciting. Look, we would love to speak to you down the track again when you get your next paper out. If we could maybe tee up another time down the track and we could ask you more questions. It's been fantastic to speak to you, and I think our Listeners will get a lot out of this. The um, the patients and the professional listeners we have who are in this space. It's been fantastic. So I don't have any more questions today. Do you, Joe? Oh, yeah. Any any uh, comment on pelvic floor exercises? Uh, your patients are doing their pelvic floor because I always come from that space as a physiotherapist. <laughs> Yep, they're all doing their pelvic floor exercises, of course, Joe, and all of my patients get to do them pre and post-operatively. Wonderful. Of course, that is that is just the standard in this day and age, right. of course. Um, so they all do that. But, again, that's that's always, uh, well, that's that's usually due to, you know, just to, to focus on their continence afterwards. I don't think it has a huge bearing on my patients here in terms of the the sural nerve grafting. 
Um, and it's maybe because they're usually further down the track as well. Yeah, sure. That all makes a lot of sense. But, but that's all, great to they're know. All, they're all they're all doing it though, of course. They have to. I have to add in well, my little <laughs> great. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, Tell you about a boy who lives inside me. It's been there all of my life. Hi, this is Dr. Joe. Thank you so much for listening to our program today. And we're pleased to let you know that we will be having weekly podcasts, not fortnightly, as originally proposed. And this is because of the popularity of our podcast. We're getting so many emails. So many questions and so much feedback and Melissa and I greatly appreciate it. What we'd really love you to do is share our podcast with anyone you think might benefit, including any man in your life. Simply download off Spotify or subscribe to thepenisproject.org and then you'll get a weekly email of our newest releases. Also feel free to send us a review and this will greatly help in our ongoing ability to bring you new and fresh information as that's the way we build what comes next. We also have show notes attached and this gives a bit of a background into any additional resources or explanations of what we're talking about. Finally, it's my great pleasure to let you know that PROST, the exercise program which sponsors our podcast, is now available on a USB resource for any man diagnosed with prostate cancer, an exercise program. Clinicians can buy these as well as the everyday bloke. So feel free to check out prost.com.au. Meanwhile, let's keep the conversation going. And the sorrow of those dread dark days. I learned to value each and every one of those warm afternoons. Boys on their bikes. Shooting stones at each other through the trees We tried to deny the going down of the sun